Well, friends, as we open the Word today, let me start by asking you a few questions to consider as we come back to our study of Acts this morning. The first question is this, what is the pursuit of your life? What is the pursuit of your life? Above all else, what is the thing that you long for? What is the course that God has called you to? What is the course that God has called you to? Have you asked Him? Or have you just assumed? This past Friday night, myself and Adam Davis helped coach our six to eight year olds in our homeschool soccer game championship. Uh, our team, the Warriors, went undefeated this season, the regular season, six and oh. We're great, went to the championship. Played in the championship game, lost four to zero. We, going into that game, may have assumed we knew the outcome. We were undefeated. There's no chance that we were going to get beat in the championship game. And yet, when we got there, we came up short, didn't we? After the game, we got the kids huddled together. And this season, we've been memorizing Romans 11:36 as a team. And I asked them, the end of it says, to Him be glory. Amen. And so I asked them, is there a way that God can be glorified even in our losing? And they said, yes, absolutely. It, their faces brightened up as they responded by saying, well, by not being mad or sad or being sore losers or being angry at ourselves. And I was struck by these questions, these very questions that I've just asked you about how at times in our lives when things do not go the way that we planned them to go, when God does not lead us down roads we assumed that He was going to lead us down, when our lives march down a costly road, is there a way to still glorify Him? Last week, I attempted to preach a couple chapters from the book of Acts. But uh, any of you who were here noted, maybe noted, that the last point of that sermon was particularly short. And that was because the vast majority of that point, um, as I assumed that God had led me to preach it, we didn't have time to get to it. Uh, I had dwelled too much on the previous two points. And so today, we're going to pick right up uh, where I left off last week, trusting that the Lord has led us here. Uh, so, God knew... And I think you'll see today as we look at the end of the passage we began to look at last week and the, the majority of what we're going to look at today, how these two passages are really connected uh, in the book of Acts. We've been looking at the book of Acts, whether you realize it or not, since the spring. And now we are coming to the very last section of the book. The very last section. So this morning we're going to be looking at Acts 20, verse 17, through chapter 21, verse 36. So 2017 through 21, 36. Now, as I said, this transitions us into really the last part of this book. Thus far, at least in that middle section, we saw the Apostle Paul, who was the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Jews of Jews, right? This very smart Jew who was opposed and persecuting God's people, Christians in that day. And it's on that road to Damascus that Jesus shines a bright light and speaks to Saul and calls him unto himself giving him a new heart and a new mission. And so we've seen now throughout the middle portion of the book of Acts, Saul, also known as Paul, carry out this mission. The author Luke has recorded so wonderfully for us 
how Paul made his way through Asia, through different cities and different regions, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and planting church after church in city after city. He's also made his way back, as we saw in his second and third missionary journeys, to many of those churches that he'd planted to encourage them and to strengthen them. But all along the way, at least here at the end, the Spirit of God has been doing a work in Paul's heart. We're going to find out about that work today. But the work is summarized in this. The Holy Spirit has now been calling Paul to go to Jerusalem. To go to Jerusalem because he has a work for him there. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts 20, verse 17. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, that is okay. We've provided some there in the pews for you. If you're new to the Bible, Acts 20, 17 can be found on page 874. Once you get there, just look for that little number 17. I think there in the pew Bible, it's called the elders. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. In just a moment, I'm going to read that, that final speech of Paul, at least as a free man. And it's the longest speech in the New Testament given directly to Christians, particularly to pastors or elders. I'm going to read that for us. But let me go ahead and give you the points of the sermon before I do, in case you want to write these down there in your bulletin. Point number one we're going to see in Acts 20, 17 through 38 is the handing off of the ministry. Handing off of the ministry. Point two in chapter 21, verses 1 through 26, we're going to see heading to Jerusalem. So Paul is handing off the ministry, and now he's heading to Jerusalem. And then number three, in 27 through 36 of chapter 21, we're going to see that Paul is held under arrest. Paul held under arrest. Well, friends, as we consider those things, let me invite you to stand once more in honor of the reading of God's Word as I read to us from Acts 20, 17 through 38. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when He had said these things, He knelt down and prayed with them all. There was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, as we begin now to consider this first point of Paul handing off the ministry and where he goes from here, my prayer for us in this sermon is that God would open our hearts to see the ministry of Paul and to see it for what it really is. That while Paul is special in many ways, my prayer is that we would see that foundationally the call upon every follower of Jesus is here. To follow Jesus wherever He will lead us. So let's jump into it with the handing off of the ministry. Like I said a minute ago, if you were here last week, you know we started here. Uh, we began to explore what was happening as, as Paul has, has made his way to the city of Miletus and he, he calls the Ephesian elders to come to him there. He, he is bent on getting to Jerusalem, so he does not have time to go to Ephesus. It's fairly close to Miletus. So he just says, hey, I've planted that church in Ephesus. I spent three years with them there. The church is established. They've put elders in place. They're pastoring and caring and shepherding that church. Can you have those come to me? And so they come to him. Here we find Paul use himself then as an example to teach these men what it looks like to care for God's church and to remind them exactly how an ideal Christian community should look. And so this point really is, we see Paul giving away what he has given his entire life to. He is handing the baton of pastoral care of building up God's church to these normal, everyday men. The big A Apostle Paul is now handing off all that the Lord Jesus has given him to a group of ordinary guys who have been called forth by God to lead his people. So let's look then there at Paul's own experience in verses 18 through 21. As I mentioned ago, we see that he spent three years among them. And Paul does this often as sharing how long he's been at a place to kind of establish that, hey, I was there. I know how it was. I was working among you. And his way there in verse 19 is, is highlighted how he lived among them. And notice he doesn't point out the activity or the results of what he does, but he talks about his own character, his own disposition towards them. He says, I was among you with all humility. We see that this has really marked Paul's ministry throughout that he has been marked by humility. This is what he brings up to the church in Corinth we looked at a few weeks ago. That he says, I knew nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. And I was, I was among, among you in much weakness and weeping and tears. And I did not take up lofty opinions and the philosophies of men. And Paul says the same thing here, that he was with them with tears. 
And these tears were, were not some emotionalism. Paul didn't get up and start telling sappy stories and start crying. No, these were tears that were marked the mark of his sincerity, the mark of his devotion and his care for them. They're the same tears, beloved saints of this church, that often fall from the faces of, of your pastors as we gather together and we pray over you and discuss how we may shepherd you. Finally, it says that it was with trials. We saw this in Ephesus, right? He faced this trial of the whole city turning into an uproar over him, and they're trying to kill him, and they get the Gentiles involved as the Jews are opposing him. We saw this back in chapter 19. They speak evil against him. But we see as Paul brings this up in verses 20 and 21 that he's, he's not complaining. And there's a real temptation here, I would think, for Paul. There's a temptation for, for, for me at times to complain of, of the hard work. We're, we all feel that. Every time one of us parents have to clean up the Legos again, we're tempted to complain. But Paul isn't complaining here about these trials and these tears, is he? He's not looking for sympathy from these pastors. Instead, he's highlighting his boldness, his dedication, and his love for them. He wants them to see not just what he did, but why he did it. His own heart for them. And all of this is based upon what? Well, there in verse 21, it's based upon the gospel message that he brought. It's based upon this message that he had received from Jesus Christ that he himself was to hand off to the people. It's, it's, friends, maybe you're here today and you've come this morning and, and you wonder why we live the way that we do as a local church. And why, why, why pastors get up and, and, and preach from, from this book. And why we pray so much. And why we sing so much. And why so much scripture is read during our service. Why we gather together in each other's homes. Why we gather together and study God's word. Why do we live this way? Well, this is the life of a gospel people. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. That the gospel isn't just some philosophy. It's not just some, some set of rules or some mechanism that he's handing them to have a better life. But Paul was delivering to them with great sincerity the very message that would save them both in eternity and give them newness of life right now. Because the message of Jesus Christ is in and of itself life-changing. It is a kingdom-altering reality when you believe it. We see this throughout the book of Acts. That this is the message that brings together people who are as different as night and day. As different as Jews and Gentiles. And it brings them together into a brand new people, a brand new body. He says there in verse 21 that this is marked by two things. And we've mentioned this every time it's come up. Because, friend, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to understand what it looks like. Should God so call upon you today to turn and to follow Him? Today is the day of salvation, so how should we respond? Look back at verse 21. He was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it looks like to respond to the gospel. We turn away from sin and we turn to Christ in our belief in Him. And this is not just something we do one time. We're not just looking for decisions. We're looking for disciples. And to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to live a life that is constantly repenting. 
turning from sin and turning to Christ. We see now this following of Jesus meant depending on Him fully. In that next section of Paul's speech there in 20 through 24, here we find Paul has, has called them and he's giving them these instructions. And it is because he has been given this charge to go to Jerusalem. He says, I'm not going to be there with you anymore. You're not going to see my face again because the Holy Spirit has constrained me. Almost as if the Holy Spirit has imprisoned me and, and is taking me himself to Jerusalem. So we find where the charge comes from then. He's led by the Spirit. Just as Jesus and Peter were It's not optional for him. He doesn't know what awaits except more imprisonment and more affliction. You have to imagine what it it was like for Paul in this, this time. The weight of knowing that he was going into a season of life that held nothing but hardship for him for the sake of Christ. Paul displayed then for these elders what a gospel confidence looks like. What a gospel confidence looks like. That, that knowing Christ and His exaltation and His rule over all, what does that do to us? Let me, let me make it more personal. Because for all of us, either we've just come out of a season of affliction or we're probably about to go into one, right? We're, we're all in this ebb and flow of hardships and sorrows and difficulties. And some of us have been dealing with the weight of things like depression or bodies that don't work like we want them to. Anxiety, troubles in the workplace, troubles in our home. We deal with the weight of this. So how can we have a gospel confidence and then keep going? Well, this is what Paul tells them. That knowing who Jesus is, knowing that He is exalted, knowing that He is risen and He is reigning in heaven, gives us the confidence that whatever we go into, He will keep us. He will preserve us. And He will watch over us. This allows Paul to follow the Spirit's leading by the Word into unknown situations and to do it with courage and confidence. We're going to see this actually play itself out at the end today and in a couple of weeks. But before we get there, notice there Paul's exhortation then in verses 25 through 31. He doesn't just call these, these, these guys from Ephesus, these pastors, as if he wants to just like, hey, can I give you an update on my life? That's not the only reason he's called them to himself. It was a trip and a journey for them to get there. And so Paul has a purpose for this. And this is what he does. He exhorts them. He encourages them. He, he builds them up. He calls them to something in these verses. He hands off, really, the baton of gospel ministry. And as I go through these verses, what I, what I really want you to think about today is how these are the marks of a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, gospel-relying pastor, an elder, an overseer. Verse 25 We find there the second behold of the three. The first one's in verse 22 and the third one's in verse 32. But there in verse 25 it says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, because because you're not going to see me again, here it is. I testify to you this day that I am as innocent of the blood of all. I gave the gospel and you heard the message If you didn't respond to it, I'm innocent. I did what I was called to do. For I did not shrink 
from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul there referencing Ezekiel 33 about being innocent of the blood talks about what his ministry looked like. This, this is the ministry of, of leaders in the church. This is the ministry of pastors and elders in the church. It is a ministry of declaring the entire counsel of God. Do you see that there in verse 27? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You want to know why we systematically go through books of the Bible like this? Why I'm not normally up here preaching topical messages that's just picking and choosing from Scripture. It's because we want to cover the whole counsel of God. Next week, Pastor Sean's going to be preaching from Psalm 1, starting his 30-year ministry of preaching through the Psalms. During Advent this year, we're going to be looking at the story of Ruth, where myself and Sean and Pastor David will be preaching those passages. In January, we're going to jump back into Hebrews and finish it up. Next summer, we're going to be looking at the 12 minor prophets. We, this past week, we had an elders retreat, and we kind of planned out some, some sermon series for the next few years because we want to give you the entire counsel of God because it is the hope of this people, and it is the hope that we hold out to others. And so then he gives them the command there in verse 28. It is the central command of this whole passage. Pay careful attention. If nothing else, a pastor is to be awake. And I don't just mean that physically. I mean that spiritually. Pay careful attention. This is what we look for in elders. This is what we look for in the men that God has put forward. And I trust that God has called some of you other men in this room to be elders in this church. And I, I trust that God is going to continue to give us more gifts of elders who may come to this church. So I want you to understand, church, what we are looking for. And this is it. That they pay careful attention to themselves and to the entire flock. That at their heart they are shepherds. They're not philosophers. They're not professors. They're not engineers of church growth, but they're shepherds at heart. The question that we have to ask ourselves as pastors is this. Do we know our flock? Do we watch over them? Some of you may wonder, why, why, why do the pastors always ask me such like cutting questions and like try to get into like the business of my life? Like why do they care so much? This is why. Because, because the, the responsibility, and dare I say the, the privilege of being a pastor, is that we get to care for God's flock. But why does Paul see this as so important? You see there at the end of verse 28, or the middle there, that, that it is the Holy Spirit who has done this. This is why we don't say, okay, we're going to make you a pastor and now you're a pastor. But as a church, we look for those who are already pastoring and eldering and caring for the flock because they are gifts from the Holy Spirit. We see finally why it's so important there in 28. Because this church, the church that those elders in Ephesus were called to care for, the church that, that David and Sean and I are called to care for, 
It's not our church. This is not our kingdom. This is, you are not our blood-bought people. Whose church is it then? Well, look, 28, the church belongs to God. And how did He buy it? Which He obtained with His own blood. Friends, I'm going to come back to this verse in the Lord's Supper today. But I just want to make this point. That if this is God's church, then God's in charge. And God rules. And His Word is what He rules it by. The church is this important to God. So the question is, is it this important to us? If God was willing to give His own blood for His people, how much blood, sweat, and tears have we given? And He tells them all of this to prepare them for what's coming. And you really see this taken up in both the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, and, and the letters to First and, First and Second Timothy, the letters to Timothy, who was, who was kind of the lead pastor, lead elder there in Ephesus. He warns them of what's coming, that there are wolves who will try to attack. The elders must know those threats. There's selfish sheep who will rise up among them who will try to draw away the flock. So the elders must guard. Again, there in verse 31, he says, be alert. How so? What does alertness look like? Well, let's keep going there through the rest of it. And we see that Paul teaches them alertness through example. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. How do elders take up such a task? How should you expect your pastors to lead you and to care for you and to watch over you? I just mentioned it. It's right there in verse 32. That it is God and it is His Word that sustains us. The Word gives us everything that we need, including what it gave Paul there at the end. He mentions his holy work ethic. That, that he worked. He did not ask, but he gave and he quotes Jesus here, and this is an interesting note. You might want to just write this in, in your margin. This is the only time this phrase is ever mentioned. So you can go back and read all four Gospels this week, and you're never going to find Jesus saying what Paul says he said here. It's as if Paul has some insight into some special revelation from Christ himself. And Paul can do that, okay? We can't. But Paul can. He says, it is more blessed to give than receive. If Paul is teaching these pastors what the pastors didn't have to hand down to their people, which works against what our natural hearts say, that it is more blessed to receive than to give. So I want to receive, I want to receive, I want to receive. Paul says, no, look at my example. Give yourself away. Give yourself away. Give your time, your energy, your money, your finances, your resources. Give them away to the Lord so that He may use you. We see there then at the end, Paul departs with much weeping, showing their love for Him. It's built out of His devotion to them. Paul boards the ship and he makes his way towards Jerusalem, which brings us really to the second section we see then as he's heading to Jerusalem. 
and 21, 1 through 26. There in verses 1 through 6, Paul and company, which is including Luke now, you'll notice the we is used there, Luke. They make their way to Tyre. And in Tyre, they say their final farewells there as they're hidden all these other cities. They're saying their final farewells, that Paul is gone. He's not coming back. He meets some disciples. And what do the disciples tell him to do there in verses 1 through 6? They tell him not to go to Jerusalem. They warn him and they prophesy and say, you can't go to Jerusalem. It's going to be trouble for you, Paul. This picks up the reminder to Paul that ugliness awaits him. We see this even more in that next section. Let me read for us verses 7 through 14 of Acts 21. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. So, so let me just stop here for a second. One of the seven, one of the original diaconate roles that were set up in Acts 6. So, so he had fled when the persecution had started. So, so Philip, there, call back, okay. Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, he stayed with him. Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. We see here in verses 1 through 7, kind of the biggest shining moment of these prophecies that are being spoke over Paul in these days. The Holy Spirit has been predicting the bonds of affliction that await Paul. We saw that back in chapter 20, verse 23. He mentions that. And these disciples, even in, in 21, 4, it says they, they, they kept telling him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. And now we see it in its even more startling way here with this man, Agabus. They move from Tyre to Caesarea, closer and closer. They stay with Philip and his daughters. It's there we meet this man. He's come down from Judea, where J Jerusalem is. The Spirit doesn't prevent Paul from going to Jerusalem, we see, but rather through this living image that Agabus gives. It prepares Paul to see that he would be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. Now, some of you may read this and say, wait a second, is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself here? Is he telling Paul one thing and then he's telling Paul something else through these prophets and this image? Like, does, is the Holy Spirit, can he not get his, his story straight? Does he not know what's going to happen? What's, what's going on here? We see here, if you look back at the text, the Holy Spirit is not contradicting Himself. He's not forbidding Paul to go and then predicting. But He's actually helping Paul understand what awaits him. We see here that the warnings were divine. That the Holy Spirit was warning him. But the forbidding, that was human. That was the people. right? And we see here how Paul is even leading them in his faith and going forward. That they're like, no, you know what's coming? Don't go. He's like, I don't care what's coming. I'm going to go. For Paul, 
The Holy Spirit was compelling, but also preparing him for it. Now, what did all of this do to Paul? What does it do to him? Well, look back at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Why does he say this? Because he says, You don't understand that the, the Holy Spirit is the one who's doing this. He says, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, been there, done that, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. My friends, we still see this in our own lives today. That while God tempts no one to do evil, He does allow us to be tested, doesn't He? He he allows us to grow in our devotion to Him and in our godliness. Friends, we, we shouldn't see every opportunity or every revealing of the Spirit as a rubber stamp of approval or as He's telling us that it's all going to be easy sailing from here on out. But we have to prayerfully discern what God is doing and what He's calling us to. This is why the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us is essential. But this is also why studying His Word and knowing His Word and being a part of His people is also essential. We need help. And so as we grow closer to Him through the known and unknown trials of this world, we have to ask ourselves the question that Paul answers here. Are we willing to give it all away for Jesus? And this question is put on the line for Paul almost immediately when he arrives in Jerusalem. Let's pick up there in verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul arrives we find that that all the suffering Paul is about to endure actually centers around a confusion about Paul's teaching. So he shows up and and all the brothers there in Jerusalem receive him. We find James, right? James, who's the brother of Christ himself, who writes to us the letter of James we have in the New Testament. He's there. He's he's the main leader in the church of Jerusalem. 
Interestingly enough, Peter's not mentioned. We don't know where Peter is and, or what he's doing. But all the other elders of the church there in Jerusalem, they greet him. and They're excited. It says that they, they rejoice and they glorify God for what he has been doing through Paul and his ministry. And yet, they say there are some, some Jewish Christians among us who have been confused about what you're teaching. That, that you actually teach that Jews shouldn't obey any of the customs of the law, and they should not circumcise their children. And if they do that, that, that they're in sin, that they must actually become like Gentiles if they want to be Christians. It's kind of the opposite of the problem we found back in Acts 15, which James refers to here, isn't it? See, back there, their struggle was that the Gentiles had to become Jews before they could become Christians. Now, these Jewish Christians have gotten their theology all messed up and what Paul believes all messed up, and they believe that Paul is teaching that Jews must become Gentiles to become Christians. And so Paul says, that's okay. He concedes. Now this isn't Paul giving over to these Jews. But he's saying, you know what? I can make some concessions here. I can go the extra mile to show them that my teaching lines up with my life. And so he, he takes on the vow of these other four men and takes on the purification custom not looking to it for salvation, but looking to it as a mark of their devotion to God. The true issue is that Paul has taught these things can't save. And while they have taken them to mean you should stop doing them, Paul has never said that. And this is one of the reasons as pastors we have to labor to be clear in what we say. Because things can be taken and twisted and made into all kinds of stuff. So what does Paul do? He takes on the vow. See there in verse 26 that Paul's going for it. And he teaches us this important truth. That justification, that is being made right with God, comes through faith in Christ alone. And this is God's grace to us alone. And in being joined to Christ in this way, we are joined with His body. And when we are joined with His body, we are joined to a varied and different and diverse people. But the power of the gospel is that it gives us this humility that we see in Paul here. It's able to accommodate others, to care for others, to sacrifice our preferences to others without compromising the truth. And Paul, like us, should be motivated by love not by a desire to always be right. So crisis averted, right? No suffering after all. The Holy Spirit was wrong, right? No. Let's look at this final section today as we close. Picking up in verse 27 through 36. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia... Let me just stop there. It's a lot of Jews. The Jews from Asia, right? Why are they there? Because it is the time of Passover. This is the whole reason Paul wanted to go. If there's ever a time to preach the gospel in the temple, it's Passover. So there are a lot of Jews there. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. 
They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. When these Jews from Asia see him, they're done for. They're in a frenzy. They stir up the entire temple. They accuse Paul, ironically, of doing the thing he's in the temple trying to prevent. They accuse him of negating the law. And he's actually there in the temple trying to show them that he is observing the customs. And then they throw him out of the temple and then the whole city is stirred up. These comments drive the whole city into a frenzy. The Roman tribune steps in, the, 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 this guard, this one who led the soldiers, and he actually, in the temple there, had a tower that was in the northwest corner, so he's able to really see over Jerusalem, the city, and what was happening. So he comes down and he arrests Paul. The crowd is so violent that he has to be carried up the steps as they shout away with him. Friends, I wonder if this sounds familiar to you. I wonder if it sounds familiar to you. It wasn't it Jesus whose teaching drove the Jews into a frenzy? And wasn't it Jesus who sought to love and rescue His own people who were rebelling against Him? It wasn't it Jesus who was arrested by the Romans? And oh, how the people cried. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. See, friends, as Paul kissed his brothers goodbye on that shore in Miletus, he understood that he had his own costly road to Jerusalem ahead of him. He was going to the very city where his Savior had died. And he got on those boats and he took those steps knowing because the Spirit had told him that the time had come. But really, he was just following in the footsteps of his Savior. The name of Jesus wasn't just something he talked about or sang about or, or prayed in. For Paul, the name of Jesus was worth being hated for, it was worth being arrested for, and it was worth even dying for because of what Jesus had done for him. And so it is with Christians to this day, friends. Sure, Paul is an apostle who mightily, by God, is spreading the gospel. But he also serves as an example to the rest of us. Because when we, when we behold all that Jesus did for us, coming to our depths, willing to take these steps to death, knowing the pain, knowing what he would suffer on our behalf, absorbing the sin that was ours to take. When we see that and we know it deep down in our core, 
Jesus goes from being a, a name that we like to put on a yard sign to a name that we cling to in life and death. And the cross goes from being a nice piece of jewelry to the very symbol of what our Savior was willing to do to purchase us. A people bought by the very blood of God who are willing to count our lives as nothing, our desires as nothing, our pursuits and our worldly pleasures as fleeting and nothing, freely lost so that we might finish our course receiving the inheritance that is not of this world. Friends, it is God and His Word of grace alone that can build us up for this work and this kingdom pursuit. Will you go with me now to Him? Father, as we come before You considering the life of Paul and how he followed in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ, we too look to the One who lived and died for our sakes, our true older brother who took on all that we deserved in our sin and rebellion and granted us freedom that we may pursue you. So God, as we prepare to take this meal, we ask and we pray, Lord, that you would be at work in our hearts. That what we feed on here would not just be a piece of bread and a cup, that we would feed on Christ. And so be strengthened for the course ahead of each one of us, that we may finish it, giving glory to Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.